Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. I'm your host, Marie Strotter. Be sure to like, follow, subscribe, go to anchor.fm forward slash A-A-C-O-N-S, or go to Bright News, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Joe Biden is the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, when it comes to gaffes, I say that he is quite gaff-tastic. And the thing that he has said uh, that I want to talk about today is that the fees on airplanes for extra room in the front of the airplane mostly affect people of color. Mostly affect people of color. I guess it's because we're so tall, uh, you know, because we play basketball. Um, or we have big feet. Or you remember when Richard Paul Evans was here, he talked about um, the correlation somehow with monkeys being racist, you know, our big paws or whatever it is. I don't know what it is. I don't know where this man is coming from uh, about uh, being uh, that that has some correlation with race. I can't imagine what correlation with race it has. But then, you know, he talks about if you don't vote for him, you ain't black. This whole rambling story about Corn Pop, who was a bad dude, um, and all of these things that he says, uh, his wife talking about tacos uh, as they relate to Hispanic people, actual people. Um, this is not really a good look for the Bidens. And um, I really wish that he would kind of stop making these comments about race, um, especially when there's nothing to do with race, such as um, sitting in the front of an airplane. So these comments about race are not helpful. And if he would just focus, or even on his son, Hunter Biden, who uh, as we know, has a number of issues and his laptop, and they're finally going to get around to, you know, examining it, but I investigating it. We'll see what happens with that. Um, but making these statements about race and the whole issue about having voter ID uh, is racist uh, because black people don't carry ID. And if you look up on YouTube, Ari Horowitz, he went to Ami Horowitz. He went around and he talked to people in a neighborhood in New York that was predominantly black. And he asked people, well, do you have ID? Do you have ID? Do you have ID? And all these people were like, yeah, what are you talking about? Of course I have ID. I can't cash a check without ID. I can't go to the doctor without ID. And this was even before COVID. So, you know, so to, to, to talk about um, these things in a racial way, uh, he would be better served, I think, in my opinion, to talk about issues of the economy, issues about inflation. Uh, I've been looking at our grocery bill going up and up and up and up. And there are things on Facebook memes where it talks about when President Trump left office, how much bread costs and eggs and milk and all of these things and how much they cost now, gasoline. And it's striking. Um, but no, we want to talk about where people sit on an airplane and that the uh, excess fees are due to people of color uh, sitting in the front of the plane. Now, today, 
We are doing something one time only. We are transforming the luxurious Acon's uh, studio into the no spin zone. Yes, that's right. Today we have with us Bill O'Reilly. Bill O'Reilly was the longtime anchor of the O'Reilly Factor and is now host for the O'Reilly Update and No Spin News. He has written 18 best-selling nonfiction books, including the popular Killing series. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me in, Marie. Pleasure to be here. Killing the Legends is the latest in the best-selling nonfiction series of all time. What has made this series such an historic success? Well, we put the reader there. So when you read a history book, a lot of them are very boring. I'm a former high school history teacher, and kids I had in school, they didn't care about history. So I had to make it exciting. I had to personalize it, and I did. And I took those techniques, and I put them on the page. So, for example, uh, in Killing the Legends, my latest book, we write about Muhammad Ali. Um, who I think was the uh, best African-American athlete in history of all time. And I open it with the fight in the Philippines between Ali and Joe Frazier, the thriller in Manila. And I put you right in the ring with Ali and Frazier. Ali is almost killed in that fight. He almost dies. Frazier is almost blinded. The ferocity, the brutality is so intense. But our writing style is to put the reader there, not just tell them about it, but show them through the uh, descriptive words. And it's, it's worked, uh, we got 19 million copies of my books in print, Marie. That's awesome. And you're absolutely right about bringing it to life for kids. I homeschooled my three kids, uh, so we were blessed to have some latitude in uh, how we taught history. So you're right. That, that's awesome. What we want to do is we want to make history interesting so that Americans, kids and adults can understand their country. So we started with killing Lincoln. We went to killing Kennedy um, and Martin Luther King was uh, featured prominently in killing Kennedy. Went to World War II, both theaters. Then we went up to uh, killing Crazy Horse, the Native American wars. Uh, into killing the mob, into killing the killers about terrorism, and now into killing the legends, three men who change American society forever. You answered the obvious question, which is, what in the world did a Mississippi redneck have in common with a Liverpool hippie and a black Muslim from Kentucky by writing, quote, what binds together our three subjects is how their fame overwhelmed them, end quote. How were Elvis, Lennon, and Ali overwhelmed by the fame that seemed to benefit each of them so immensely? Well, let's take Elvis, for example. He's a teenager when he goes on the Ed Sullivan show and blows up the conformist culture in America, the culture of the 1950s. One guy with incredible talent, goes on the nation's top variety show, sings a dopey song, Hound Dog, and boom, rock rebellion comes in, okay? He becomes fabulously wealthy. Everybody knows him all over the world. Uh, his manager, Tom Parker, steals from him, but he's so inexperienced in these things that he doesn't really pay much attention. 
But then as he gets more and more famous, um, it starts to become oppressive to him. He can't sleep. He can't trust anybody. He gets overwhelmed. He marries a teenager. She's not of much help in handling this incredible fame and notoriety. So he gives up and he starts taking narcotics like crazy. And uh, the manager steals even more money from him and his whole world collapses. So fame overwhelmed him. Lennon, similar. Beatles, biggest band in the world. Everybody knows Lennon. At first, he's gregarious. He's the leader of the crew. And then he withdraws after he meets Yoko Ono, who takes over his whole life, runs every part of it. And Ali, same thing. He comes back from the Olympics with a gold medal, heavyweight boxer, and then he signs up with the Nation of Islam. And Elijah Muhammad and his son Herbert Muhammad take over his life. And they tell him what to do, and he does it. And they take money from him, astronomical amount of money. And they put him in fights that he never should have been in because of his health. So all three were crushed by their fame. Wow. Now, interestingly, the three met each other separately over the course of their careers. And each of the two rock stars uh, seemed to prefer the company of the boxer. Would you take us through these meetings and why Elvis and Lennon both got on um, with the boxer, but not with each other, with Ali, okay. but not with each other? So Elvis was jealous of the Beatles. All right, because the Beatles pretty much replaced him as the top pop uh, phenomenon in the world. But the Beatles loved Elvis. They wanted to meet him more than anything. So a meeting was arranged in Los Angeles and a meeting went OK. I mean, they jammed and they sang songs and this and that. But Elvis was a little distant. He wasn't like their buddy. And then the Beatles picked up on that. Um, as far as Ali was concerned, there was no competition. So uh, when Elvis met Ali, as just two superstars, and they got publicity out of it. The Beatles, the same thing. Beatles went to Miami. There's Ali training in a ring. They're fooling around. Pictures go all over the world. So there was no tension in that meeting. But in the private meeting, the Elvis-Beatles uh, meeting was private. Okay, nobody got to see that. But the others were public, more of a business kind of thing. Ali, like many other athletes, stayed around for far too long, damaging his health uh, for yet another multi-million dollar paycheck. How much of this reluctance to leave the ring was prompted by Herbert Muhammad um, and or the Nation of Islam rather than Ali's desire for the rewards of being the heavyweight champion? But he didn't need the rewards if he had had a legitimate management team. Yeah. So Ali was broke because the Muslims took so much of his money. Elvis, the same thing. Elvis almost filed for bankruptcy because Parker was taking 50% and more of, of what Elvis was grossing. So Ali, uh, his life descended into chaos. Four wives, nine children, I believe. Hmm. It was all over the place. Okay. And meantime, he doesn't pay any attention to the business end of it. 
and they got him in the ring four or five times a year. And he's getting smacked around. His brain is actually mm-hmm. dissolving because those were big paydays. Mm-hmm. And the Nation of Islam took a lot of money out of that. Now, as you alluded to, one of the most intriguing figures in Killing the Legends is Colonel Tom Parker, who was an illegal immigrant described as a psychopath and con man. How did such a man become such a parasite to the king of rock and roll, given how many people must have been warning him that he was being exploited? Um. Number one, Tom Parker was a criminal. He had to flee Holland under very nebulous circumstances. Uh, He gets on a boat, then he jumps off the boat, gets to the USA without any papers or passport, becomes a carny barker. He works for Carnival, you know, that world. Mm -hmm. Um, But he's canny and and he's an addicted gambler and he needs money. So he gravitates toward the country music world, hooks up with a guy named Eddie Arnold, who in the 50s had -hmm. a string of country music hits. And through that world, he hears about Elvis because Elvis was cutting demo tapes in Memphis uh, with Sun Records. And Parker goes and checks him out and sees this really handsome guy with a tremendous voice that is basically singing black music. But he's a white guy. So Parker puts it together and says, look, son, I'll manage you. I'll be the greatest. You don't have to worry about anything. I'll take care of it. And there it goes, because Elvis didn't know any better. And you said there were a lot of people advising him against Parker. Not really at the beginning, because he didn't have a structure. Elvis's parents were poor. They didn't know anything about showbiz. He marries a teenager. She wasn't. Uh, sophisticated any of this. You really didn't have anybody um, steering him away from this horrible Tom Parker. So there came a point where all three of them knew they were being exploited. That's why I don't, I don't portray them as victims, Marie. They're not victims. They knew and they allowed it to happen. Mm. Now, perhaps you could answer the question of the ages for us. Would the Beatles have lasted longer if not for Yoko? Well, it wasn't Yoko per se that broke the band up. It was John Lennon becoming addicted to heroin. That's what broke up the Beatles. And he became a drug addict while he was cloistered by Yoko Ono. Now, to his credit, he kicked it. But in the end... The three Beatles were watching a guy stoned on heroin come into the recording studio. They couldn't handle it, particularly McCartney, who was, you know, creative force and looking at this guy who's out of it. That's what broke up the Beatles. Now, if Yoko had not come along, who knows? Uh, There were tensions. Uh, Certainly um, none of the four were benevolent. I think Ringo is probably the most uh, um, tolerant of the three. And, you know, their tensions are together for so long and there's so much pressure on them to, you know, come up with one hit after another. You can imagine what that does to people. But uh, it was the uh, heroin that really dissolved the Beatles in the late 1960s. It's difficult for someone to read, quote, 
Fame changes those who receive it. It is not a natural condition for anyone, end quote, uh, without being aware that the writer of that statement is also a very famous man. When you write about unnatural conditions of fame, how much of that is autobiographical? Well, I'm a different cat, as Dennis Miller would say. <laughs> but I always wanted to be famous. But I didn't want to be famous to have a Rolls Royce or a mansion. I don't care about any material things at all. Um, I want to be famous because people recognize that I was a good writer, a good broadcaster, a good reporter. Mm -hmm. And I worked really hard to make that happen. But I never gave the other side of it a thought. And I should have. And because I didn't prepare myself and, and put up guards, I got hammered. Um, and I should have known it. It's my fault. When you're going to bloviate about politics on nationwide TV and say controversial stuff, they're going to come after you. And they're going to try to hurt you. And some people might try to kill you, as John Lennon found out. I didn't prepare. So when the wave of hatred came, um, I survived it, but it damaged me. And I learned the lesson. So now I'm in a position as a writer to really give you insights into that whole world because I went through it. That's powerful. Now, um, Another celebrity who has been cut by the sharp edges of fame is Donald Trump, who has been hinting at a 2024 presidential run. Is Trump the best candidate for the GOP, in your opinion, or has the time come for someone like Ron DeSantis? Well, first of all, on the fame thing, Donald Trump's addicted to fame. And... So were Lennon and Elvis and Ellie. So he has some in common with those three people. They are overwhelmed. Fame's like a drug, Marie. So every day Donald Trump wants people to say, hey, this is Donald Trump. What a great guy. What a smart guy. What a great president. You know, he, he kind of needs it. Biden's the same way. Biden wants the power and sold out every position he ever had to get it. So this fame thing is such a powerful substance. You know, it's not real. You can't touch it. But it is real because it's there. Yeah. And it affects people, everybody uh, that's famous and in various ways. Now, as far as running again, Donald Trump wants to run again. I think he needs a course correction if he uh, wants to win. He can't keep doing the grievous stuff. Can't keep relitigating the election. Can't keep fighting every fight. I've told him that eye to eye, man to man. Um, you got you got to run on your record what you did, and you got to look forward. You got to stop at the other stuff. I don't know whether he's going to do it or not. He doesn't take my advice all that often. <laughs> once in a while, um, but he's a formidable candidate. And I never say who should or shouldn't. I let the folks. They can sort that out. I give you strengths and weaknesses on all the uh, people who want power. To follow up on that comment about Joe Biden, uh, you rank Joe Biden as our second 
worst president behind only James Buchanan. Many might argue Jimmy Carter as the worst, but perhaps that's just modern memory. Uh, walk us through why Buchanan ranks number one in your view. Okay, so Jimmy Carter at least tried to solve problems. He failed, but he at least tried to solve them. Biden's not even trying. Yeah. He tells you he is, but he isn't. Now, James Buchanan became president um, in, uh, if I can date on the top of my head, 1856, I believe. And the nation was fracturing because the North didn't want slavery anymore. The abolitionist movement was enormous. And the South, not all the people in the South, but the landowners, the plantation people, were making millions of dollars by exploiting slave labor. It's free. And they don't want to give it up. And they control the state legislatures in Alabama and Georgia and South Carolina, whatever southern state. Yes. Those plantation owners had the money and controlled it. And they basically said, we're going to leave. Way back, way back in like 1848, they were, they were planning their exit. The federal government knew that. They knew that uh, arms depots are being raided, federal arms depots, and, and Confederate rebels are stealing guns, defying uh, federal officials, refusing to do X, Y, and Z. Buchanan comes in, he does nothing. Nothing. He lets it go. It was amazing. And the South sees that. It's almost like the criminals today that don't get punished yes. for violence. They see they're not going to get punished. They do more of it. Back then, the South, the rebels saw they weren't going to get punished by Buchanan. They did more of it. So then when Lincoln came in as the president after Buchanan, Buchanan won term, okay, the Civil War is already there. It was already a fait accompli. And Buchanan didn't do one damn thing to stop it, which is why he is the worst president ever and always will be. As a follow-up to that, what is your opinion of this rush to demolish monuments and erase our past? Shouldn't we learn from the abundant lessons taught to us by history? Sometimes. So in New Orleans, there was a statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest. Know him? No. Okay. He was a Confederate general who started the Ku Klux Klan. Horrible human being. I mean, off the chart, horrible. His statue was built and stood in New Orleans up until about two years ago. I'm an African-American in New Orleans or anywhere else. I see Nathan Bedford Forrest being memorialized like that. I, I'm a little teed off. OK, I, so in that case, I think you remove the statue. But Robert E. Lee's different. So Robert E. Lee, yeah, he was wrong. He should not have fought against his own country, but he wasn't at the level of Nathan Bedford Forrest. He was more of a military commander. He was times compassionate, as I read about in Killing Lincoln. 
So I wouldn't remove Robert E. Lee. But so I think it's an evaluation of what, who the person is who's being lionized. You know, I agree with that to a point, I guess, because we've talked about that, obviously, seeing all of these statues uh, be erased. But I guess my opinion is maybe not lionized uh, where they're in the open public square, but certainly not to erase them from history. I don't want them erased from the annals of history because we certainly need to learn those lessons. So I definitely think museums and other places we need to learn uh, so that we learn from our past and we don't make those mistakes again. And I'm afraid, um, you know, as we talk about the Beatles, you know, I've mentioned it to I'm 58. I've mentioned it to people that are a little bit younger than myself. Who's that? Who who are they? You know, it's like, you know, when you don't remember things, they are erased from your past. And I don't want them erased from the uh collective consciousness of society. I want people to remember uh, how awful slavery was, how awful a lot of things that, that we feel are uh, triggering or that we need to have safe spaces from. I agree. I I mean, I think it has to be contextualized um, and people like Nathan Bedford Forrest have to be uh, looked at. And villains and heroes are what our history is all about. And we have to clearly define them. And there should be museums that, that say, here this one, here's that one, this is what they did, this is what they did. That's called freedom. That's called intellectual freedom. So you could learn about as many people as possible. This cancel culture garbage yes. and this woke crew, they're fascists. Yes. They just want what they want. And everybody else gets wiped out. No, no. So I agree with you 100 percent on that. But I think when it is in a public square. That if it's deeply offensive. Then you move it somewhere else. For those conversations to take place. I mean, I think there are a lot of conversations that we've not had. And I think those conversations need to happen. Um, And so you're right when. We're not quite so inflamed. Um, And I don't know that that will ever happen because I think that, that the conversations need to happen first. Uh, and, and anytime anyone mentions race, uh, it's you're automatically a racist or you're this or you're that. And, and people get so upset about it that we can't really start talking about the issues underneath all of that because, you know, I've, I, I'm biracial. So, you know, I, I understand a lot of things. Um, and I guess what I'm saying is just that what we've noticed at African-American conservatives is that when we talk about race, can't you people get over that? Can't you people forget about that time or get over slavery? And a lot of it has to do with, you know, people don't want to think about a difficult time where people were in chains or people were being raped or people were having their children removed from them. So we don't want to talk about those things because they're uncomfortable, but we never really get past those things unless we talk about some of those uncomfortable things. Well, there's a way to do it, though. I mean, yeah. uh, I, th- I think the uh, we got to get away from the personal stuff, the personal grievance. As you know, Marie, there is a whole subclass of people in America that think they're victims and they want stuff. Yes. Hey, give me stuff. Reparations. Yeah. Yeah. My my great great grandfather was was abused and this. And so, hey, let's go. Give it to me now. I need it. I want it. I'm entitled to it. That is divisive. Yes. And um, other people that go, well, look, I had a 
uh, a great great grandfather in the Civil War was got his head blown off trying to free the slaves. Yeah, you know, so you have to provide some context to all of this. But certainly, any clear thinking person knows that African Americans have had it much harder in this country than anybody else. Native Americans might be close to that, but that's a fact. But it's not a fact today. This society has made great strides and we are not a white supremacist nation. And this is the kind of garbage that we hear every day. That's absolutely right. And I've talked about that with respect to all of the looting and the things that go on. Uh, How is taking a a 65 inch plasma TV that's not yours going to assuage, you know, all of the years? I mean, how does that erase that? I mean, and reparations. All of the people in America today who could claim even one drop of black blood, um, it, I say that it would be like a 30 cent credit, you know, when Wells Fargo settles or, or you know, your cable company settles, you get a 30 cent credit or a dollar credit on your bill. That doesn't, uh, that, that doesn't even address the situation. How come Black Lives Matter with all of this money that they got didn't establish um, money for HBCUs where you be, are, are invited to the table and you're part of the conversation where you are giving scholarships so that people enter the legal system as judges, as court clerks, as correctional officers, uh, officers, and all of these kinds of things. You come to the table because as you said, there are no barriers anymore to any of that. Opportunity exists in America to the largest extent it ever has, which is why millions of people are trying to sneak in here. That's okay, right. I mean, it's right. And if you work hard, if you obey the law, if you're a good person, the odds are that you will succeed in the United States. That's the truth. Yes. And uh, it's not going to be easy. You're going to have to be self-reliant. The government's not going to be able to do it for you. But if more people would buy into that vision and put the past aside, not ignore the past, learn from the past, but look forward and say, you know what? We can improve our society even more, which I certainly know we can do, to open up even more opportunity for people like who don't have good parents. That's the killer now, Marie. Yes. If you're a a baby born into a family where you have derelict parents, father's not there, mother's irresponsible, whatever it may be, your odds of succeeding are so much, so much lower than the baby that's born into the two-parent home. That is right. With a traditional structure. And government can't do much about that, but it can get the message out to give the baby a break. And we don't hear that message very much. I think not only do we not hear that message, but I do think that there's an intentional attack on the family. All of this woke stuff, BLM wanted to disrupt the nuclear family. And I think all of this stuff you're seeing with the Drag Queen Story Hour, all of this stuff is to normalize behavior and break down that two-parent structure. So then we can eliminate the construct of gender. We can eliminate the construct of the family, which is the building block of society. So I think you're absolutely right on that point. Well, it's classic Marxism. That's what they wanted to do, that human beings really don't matter individually, all allegiances to the state. And the fastest way to get there is to break your family apart so you don't have any allegiance to mom and dad or grandma or grandpa. 
and to say, yeah, no, gender, you be whatever you want to be. You don't have to be this or that. But in the end, you have to give everything to the state. The state will tell you what you can and can't have. That's the classic, classic pathway to communism. And that's what we're seeing now on the progressive left here. That's absolutely right. If you're just joining us for this segment, our guest has been Bill O'Reilly. He is the author of Killing the Legends, as well as a number of other books. How can we continue to follow your work and what's next for you? Well, we just signed a deal with News Nation, a cable network. I'll do commentary on there a couple of times a week. I live at BillOReilly.com, one of the most um, successful independent websites in the world. And people can go there and uh, see what we have, what we offer. We have concierge and uh, premium memberships. Um, there's a lot of stuff there, Marie. If you really want to know what's happening in this country and in the world, you go to BillOReilly.com. You'll know because I don't pull. I don't do any ideology. I don't do any of that. I'm a problem solving kind of guy. I think I'm a fair man. Uh, we have a great staff. We're putting out a lot of good product. And, you know, I appreciate you. Uh, reading Killing the Legends. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, it's a book that surprises a lot of people that these people had so much influence on American culture today. Thank you so much for being our guest today. All right, Maria, I hope we can talk again soon. Thank you. All right. So let's, this, this is the time where we bring in DK. So DK, come on in. Hola. Hey, how are you? I'm okay. That was a great interview. I think you made Bill another friend. Riley. How <laughs> cool is that? I feel like I have the coolest job ever. We've had Richard Paul Evans on the show. We've had Bill O'Reilly on the show. We have some pretty amazing guests, you know? Alan West, yeah. Alan West. I mean, we have, I mean, if, now if I start naming people, Victor Davis Hansen. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty uh, cool. Jason Riley. Yeah, yeah. Wilford Riley. We're, we're doing okay. This is we're a good doing, spot We've gone through to. the Rileys. We've gone through two Rileys <laughs> and an O'Reilly. So I think we can move to the another part of the alphabet now. <laughs> yeah. We need one more Riley, then we can then we'll move on. <laughs> one more Riley. Sneak one in there. So what did you take away from that interview? No, it was a, it was a great the great thing about the book is like it really takes it through a lot of um things that really meant a lot to people of a certain age, you know, people, like people your age, of course. <laughs> <laughs> See, our audience doesn't know that we're 11 months apart, but that's okay. Okay. Well, people of that generation, you know, we, we remember Elvis, we remember the Beatles, and and we, of course, we, we remember Muhammad Ali. And it was it's so interesting to go through uh, their ups and downs as, celebrities like when they were on top of the world i saw a video once um that made me wonder how much of the beatles breakup was due to yoko because right after the beatles broke up it seemed as though lennon and ono became like simon and garfunkel i mean you couldn't have one scene without yeah. the other and yoko was the worst singer oh you can imagine worse than you. <laughs> At least I've seen worse. He just like howled. There's a famous video. Yes. That, uh, <laughs> when John Lennon finally meets his idol, uh, Chuck Berry, 
he's probably one of Chuck Berry's like one of the few guys John Lennon idolized more than he idolized Elvis. And he got to sing all these great old songs uh, with John Lennon. I mean, with uh, Chuck Berry, he sang Memphis, Tennessee, uh, Johnny Be Good, and so forth. But of course, it had to be with Yoko singing background. And she would she grabbed the mic and it wasn't it wasn't even worse. She would just start howling. You know, picture Chuck Berry singing Memphis, Tennessee, and Yoko would go, Whoa! <laughs> and after about a minute or two of that, Chuck Berry rolling his eyes and John Lennon rocking along like like he's has like he's married to the best singer ever. Someone accidentally cut Yoko's mic. <laughs> accidentally. Yeah. They probably, probably tripped over the cord or something. <laughs> whatever. Maybe they running out the of the studio. Yeah. Maybe they didn't pay the lecture bill that week or whatever. For some reason Yoko Ono's mic got cut off. And she doesn't realize it. So while Chuck Berry is singing, she's continuing to grab a mic and she starts screaming into it. But thankfully, no one can hear her. It's a really funny video. I'll have to show you one time. <laughs> now, if we could just find out when you call to sing happy birthday to me, how we can <laughs> cut your mic. So. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, so what did you think about the whole thing about the monuments, though? I think you both made excellent points. You know, I think I think there are a lot of people lionized who sh shouldn't be lionized. He mentioned the KKK guy. You can also say they're monuments to people like Margaret Sanger here and there. Yeah, um, that's I know true. in New Jersey, we have Princeton University. They have a lot of tributes to uh, Woodrow Wilson, you know, who was probably yeah. the most racist president of all time and maybe the most racist human being of all time. Some of the quotes I hear from him, I mean, they're stunning that you can feel so much hate for people just because of the color of their skin. I mean, I'm not yeah. naive about racism, but some of the things he said and obviously felt about black people were are stunning. So I, I get why Princeton wants to divorce itself from Wilson and why we would want to divorce ourselves from other people, but you know, it 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 inevitably goes too far. And you know, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, people like that. I uh, they they just got the story wrong. They just they just lashed out at white people, forgetting their contribution to this country, forgetting their greatness. And that's why you don't go by mob rule because the mob goes on emotions. They don't go on facts. They, they've destroyed monuments to men who are abolitionists, for example. Um, men who deserve, definitely deserve to be honored, men and women. So, Well, they took down the monument of the Tuskegee Airmen or they defaced it. They took down a monument of... Of Frederick Douglass of all people, wow. I'm like, what could Frederick Douglass have? I mean, he was an abolitionist, and he's black. Explain that one to me. So yeah, there's a famous one of of Lincoln standing above a, a recently freed slave, and the slave is, oh yeah, was, was on his knees, but he's rising. He's just been emancipated by Lincoln, apparently, 
and, and some people took that as a white man standing over a black man and and that and that's a monument caused controversy so I, de I definitely see both sides of it but it should be done in a rational way not with um, vandals and and so forth speaking of vandals next time you're in a art museum i know you go all the time i'm sure they have like one in texas somewhere <laughs> Never no tomato anybody. soup yeah leave my <laughs> tomato soup at home yeah if you're in a museum you see somebody with a can of tomato soup open alert. can of tomato open soup or else you have a can soup. opener with you i don't <laughs> alert authorities right away yeah that was insane and see that's the thing i mean again not to to characterize it but generally it's people who are white who are leftists who are middle class do you can you imagine if i mean how many things do you think get tagged in chicago by black kids or uh in la by hispanic kids buildings that get tagged and do you think that they go to jail for some of those things Probably, I mean, maybe not recently because all of the laws, as Bill O'Reilly alluded, alluded to, are being erased so that you can steal stuff and do all kinds of stuff and not face consequences. But back in my day, if you tagged buildings, then you would get sent to juvenile detention or you would have some sort of consequence, right? But now when white students do it, it's chic and it's for the cause and it's trendy and we're making a statement and that kind of thing. Really? Okay. Yeah, now it's art. Now it's art. There's, there's one uh, graffiti artist, I forget his name, I think he works mostly out of England. His work, that's it. Oh. <laughs> He's, I didn't uh, know who the slavery guy was. I didn't know who Frederick Bedford <laughs> Forrest was. I'm sorry, because I don't keep up with the KKK. But but I know goodness. who Banksy is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, he's a millionaire now, isn't he? Yeah. He's uh, yeah. No one knows who he is, but somebody's giving him some pretty large checks for his artwork. Somebody so. knows who he is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, somebody's signing those checks. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, now it's art. Who would have thunk it back in the 70s? Got anything else for us? No, it was a great show. I think you did a great job. Well, thank you, sir. I think, as always, you do a great job. So that's it for Marie. This is DK. And this is African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. Be sure to like, follow, subscribe. Go to brightnews.com. Go to the YouTube channel for Bright News. You can see all of our podcast there in full. You can also go to anchor.fm forward slash A-A-C-O-N-S. Until next time, this is African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement.